precious Jesus, uh, we come before you uh, admitting our own flawed human nature and our own vulnerability and the fact that we uh, tire and become exhausted and, uh, Lord, sometimes uh, dispirited or despondent and depressed. And yet, Heavenly Father, we know that your word is like an oasis. It is a tranquil pool, and at times it is a reflection pool whereby when we look into it, we can uh, see ourselves both as we are and as we should be. So we ask, uh, Lord, that as we embark upon uh, your word today, that we would receive all the help and encouragement that we need to live our lives for you, that you would work in a supernatural way in all the circumstances of our lives, the uh, even the small details as well as the grand plans, and that you would meet our needs, be they financial or physical or emotional or relational, uh, that we might be our best selves that we could possibly be as workers within your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to both um, plan how it is that we are to work for you, and may we pray to you uh, for the resolve. Uh, help us to understand that we need each other as Ron shared with the children this morning, we can't do this work alone. In fact, if we're doing it alone, Lord, we know that's a sure sign of our own failure. May we take heart, Lord, from the inspiration uh, from Daniel's life as he, regardless of the cost involved, always sought your face in prayer. And we pray and ask these things in your holy name, Jesus, our friend and Savior. And everyone said, Amen. Well, many of you uh, may be familiar with my family story. Some of you uh, perhaps not. So I'll just um, uh, bring before you this morning some of the broad brush strokes, um, the outline, and you're certainly uh, more than welcome to ask me about more of the particulars, uh, perhaps one-on-one, uh, -on -one, or I may have an opportunity to unpack or share more with you um, in another message as we go uh, forward into the future. Uh, my family story, uh, originally on my father's uh, side, uh, begins with a great deal of uh, hardship because in the 1940s, uh, my father was taken as a uh, prisoner and interned in a communist concentration camp uh, where he spent uh, a number of years. Uh, he personally witnessed uh, many, many people within that camp, it's called uh, Semlin, uh, S-E-M-L-I-N, concentration camp. Uh, there were various names for this camp uh, throughout the post-war years, depending upon who was in control of the camp. Originally, uh, first the Nazis and then uh, the uh, Soviets, uh, the partisans under Marshal Tito took control of this camp and they had their own uh, Slavic name uh, for it, but within that camp he witnessed uh, a great many hardships. Uh, uh, as I said, those that would die of disease from uh, food uh, that either wasn't cooked or it was old and really couldn't be eaten, but because the people were starving so greatly within the camp, they uh, did eat this food and many of them died as a result. Uh, many within this camp died from exposure uh, to cold and to uh, the elements, and uh, so it was just a, a horrific place uh, to be. And of course, uh, this forms a, a very salient and foundational part of who our family is and, and uh, who I am as a result. And 
I can remember um, on one occasion, uh, subsequently, uh, watching the evening news with my father, and this was in the 1980s, and um, this happened to be the time that the uh, Bosnian War was underway, and there were uh, horrific uh, uh, news reports coming in from uh, Bosnia and those, those countries that used to make up the former uh, Yugoslavia. These ethnic groups were clashing and were uh, vigorously at war with each other uh, once again. And I remember my, my father standing and watching these news reports and uh, standing very quiet and uh, very silently. And they had images on the television of of men that were starved, and you know what that picture looks like. The, 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 the rib cage uh, begins to, to draw in, and the, and, and the whole frame of the human person becomes very dangly and just emaciated, and, and you could see the indentations uh, within the face of these uh, prisoners of war, and they were all kept behind these barbed wire fences, and I remember my father very quietly and very thoughtfully saying this comment. He said, I never thought that I would live long enough to see this barbarity and this cruelness that human beings can perpetrate upon one another play out all over again. So what's our takeaway from this? And uh, it can be one of two things, I suppose. One is that we as human beings, we never learn our lessons, do we? So many years can go by. There can be one war and uh, there can be peace. And then as the decades pass, we forget what brought about that peace. And then uh, whom we once called an old enemy, uh, we find that they are uh, fresh enemies to us, and then we begin to perpetrate these crimes upon one another all over again. So we can say that, and we can also perhaps say that there is something that is deeply flawed and broken within us as human beings that allows us to destroy and to take one another's lives. And so it is that it seems that one cruelty or massacre or atrocity is topped by another one that seems to follow as history goes by. But while this is true in the chronicles of human misery and suffering, it can also be true for human accomplishment and triumph. Uh, during the 1972 uh, Summer uh, Olympic Games, we were getting ready to start the, um, the Winter Olympics uh, there in South Korea. Uh, but go back with me to 1972. Uh, my family and I we were vacationing in, in Switzerland at the time, and I remember those Summer Games because it was the Summer Games of Mark Spitz, if any of you can remember him, the uh, fantastic... Olympic gold medal swimmer. And so in 1972, uh, he won seven gold medals. And it was just a, a, an amazing feat that, that Mark Spitz had accomplished. And it was only um, bested by uh, Michael Phelps, who uh, in 2008 in the Summer Olympic Games in Beijing won eight Olympic gold 
medals. We know that Michael Phelps has gone on to become the uh, greatest Olympian of all time. So there we have a case of a great Olympian, Mark Spitz, and, and, and we, we oftentimes look to those that compete in Olympic Games as, as being, well, they are the, the, the height of what humans can accomplish that is good and true and, and, and noble and right. And so we celebrate, of course, the accomplishments of Mark Spitz, and who would have ever thought that someone like Michael Phelps would have come along and gone even farther and better in terms of human accomplishment. Well, in today's scripture, we encounter and we discover another accomplished individual by the name of Daniel. And like an Olympian, he was within the court of King Darius the Mede. Now, the thing to note about the prophet Daniel was that he was not only an excellent governor and politician, but the text tells us, as Dick shared with us this morning, that he was a man of integrity. What does that mean? It means he had a good heart and that he behaved well and that he honored other people. And he was so good at his job that King Darius decided to move him up the corporate ladder within the kingdom and make him second in command uh, to none other than the king himself all throughout the Medo-Persian Empire. Now you may say, well, how much responsibility uh, was that actually that King Darius had in mind uh, for the prophet Daniel? Well, if we take a look at the Medo-Persian Empire, we see that Darius was ruling over approximately 50 million people. Uh, that's a lot of people, for sure. Um, that's approximately, for uh, that particular period in time, about half of the world's entire population. It was 44% of the world's population that King Darius was ruling over, and Daniel was all set to become the number two guy. Now, today, we like to say that a politician having integrity is really rather an oxymoron, isn't it? We say that those two things, they can't possibly ever go together. It's never been my experience that those two things uh, go together. Perhaps you know of some politicians that, that, that uh, uh, execute their office with integrity, and, and I'm sure that's the case, but um, oftentimes we, we raise an eyebrow of suspicion when we think of integrity going along with politics, but it certainly was true for Daniel. His political accomplishments we see emerge seamlessly from his personal integrity. So juxtaposition Daniel's integrity over against those in the king's court who were jealous of his integrity. And as a result, they became insecure around this man that was about to be elevated into the number two spot within King Darius's kingdom. Well, it's the same problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees. Jesus spoke truth. He lived a life of integrity. Holy Scripture says he was the Lamb of God without spot, without blemish. And Daniel had the favor of the people, and Jesus had the favor of the people. And so Daniel becomes a type of Jesus within the Old Testament. 
As Daniel was delivered from death, yes, following this passage, subsequently he is thrown into the lion's den, and we know the end of that story. He is delivered by the angel of the Lord who shuts the mouths of the lions, and so Daniel is saved, if you will. He was delivered from death. Jesus was delivered from death. Now, the most important part of Daniel's integrity was how he made prayer the prerogative of his life. And there is a uh, reformer in the Protestant church going back into the 15th uh, century uh, by the name of Ulrich Zwingli. Uh, And Zwingli wrote this um, uh, fascinating book um, that I love to read. It's, uh, It's entitled A Commentary on True and False and Religion. I thought that would get us all excited this morning, right? Yes, and uh, you would read that, and it's a rather dry and dusty tome from 500 years ago, but uh, I'm the kind of person that takes great delight in uh, such works. But Zwingli says the following thing about prayer. He says, true prayer is the conversation which, as a result of faith, you have with God as your Father, who is a most safe and sure helper, as Ron was sharing uh, with the children earlier, that prayer is a help to us. Zwingli goes on to say, it's adoration. Prayer is adoration. It's lifting up the heart to God, and it must be offered with a spirit of petition. Thy will be done. No one, Zwingli says, can pray for another unless he loves him and seeks his good. Well, Daniel's move, just to to, uh, bring to summation our sermon series throughout the month of January, Daniel's move was to make prayer his prerogative. You see, Daniel was a very busy man, as I've outlined his job description for you. Yes, he was a governor. He oversaw millions of people within the kingdom of King Darius. So, busy. But Dr. W.E. Sangster wrote, if you are too busy to pray, then you are just too busy. You've got too much busyness going on in your life if there is no opportunity, no moment to to be able to find the time that is needed or necessary to pray. And here's one of the things that I want to lift up and, and commend to you this morning. Other people need your prayers. They need your prayers. They need my prayers. Daniel knew and recognized that he had people in his life that needed him to fall on his knees three times a day, looking out that open window towards the city of Jerusalem. There were others in his life that needed those prayers. Perhaps one of those persons was even King Darius himself for wise administration and governing these 50 million people properly with integrity. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said there is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christians more than how we pray. Well, Jesus agrees with Daniel. 
Because Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and then all these things shall be added unto you. And what do we find Daniel doing in Daniel chapter 6? Daniel 6, Matthew 6. Bring those two things together because Jesus is talking about putting God first. And Daniel the prophet in Daniel 6 is putting God first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. C.S. Lewis teaches us, and uh, I I won't fill uh, this morning's message with quotations from C.S. Lewis, but C.S. Lewis says, do you know what? When it comes to our faith, it can never be watered down. We cannot have a half Christianity. We cannot have a partial faith in Jesus. We cannot have just a little bit of grace. We cannot have just a little shed blood. We've got to have all of the gospel so that we can be entirely saved. But wherever true religion is found, there will also be found those that are willing to use false religion to corrupt it. So you may be asking this morning, um, is there such a thing as false religion? And here's how Zwingli uh, defined false religion in his commentary. He said, what else is such a proceeding than setting, this is what he equated false religion to, uncracked nuts before little children, he said, is false religion. And the little children, they they take these nuts and and rather than cracking them open so that they can get to the nut inside the shell, all these little children do is they lick the nut, thinking that they're going to be able to get the nut out of the shell by just licking it. But no, true religion cracks the nut. And some of us spend our days and we just... Um, to, to uh, borrow the example from Zwingli, and we just kind of lick the outside, the exterior of the shell, and we get nowhere with that. And so the nut's got to be cracked. Now, of course, uh, there is. Um, it's what every mighty prophet battled in the Old Testament, which is encouraging God's people to get to that place where the nut is opened up. And what is it that we find on the inside of that nut through faith and prayer? It's God's power. It's God's life. It's the forgiveness of God that is freely given to us. You see... False religion is plain and abundant in our text where the governors and satraps of Medo-Persia endeavored to manipulate King Darius. Here, just sign this order. Everyone will fall in line. But they were setting the king up. That's what false religion does. It sets other people up. It's not liberating. It's confining It doesn't set people free. False religion binds people up. They are, as what St. Paul calls in his letter to the Philippians chapter 3, those that espouse false religion, he says, are the enemies of the cross of Christ. You see, life is promoted through the embracing and the acceptance of the cross not the downplaying thereof. And so even though these enemies of true religion exist, we're we're not going to pay them any mind, you know? 
We can't do that. And the world is filled with every different brand and kind and flavor uh, and incarnation of false religion. But I'm here to proclaim for you this morning, my friends, that there is one true faith and it is the man of Galilee hanging upon the cross there on the hill outside of Jerusalem, you see. Don't pay those that espouse or promote false religion any mind. Daniel didn't. He went right on a praying. Well, we've published this edict. You know? You can't pray in school anymore. Pay no mind. Go ahead and pray in school anyway. You know? Jesus didn't pay those that espouse false religion anyway. He went on healing and declaring the kingdom of God was among men and women and children. Paul didn't pay those that espouse a false religion any mind. He went right on preaching and teaching and evangelism. Why? Because true religion, when the nut is cracked, is always vindicated. The angel of the Lord will come to us. And will deliver us. Daniel emerged from the lion's den. Jesus emerged from the tomb. So that today we celebrate what? The tomb? No, we must supply the adjective as faithful believers. The empty tomb. And while the collective might of other nations could never ever bring pagan Rome to its knees, the Holy Spirit did so. Think about this with a singular stroke of St. Paul's pen. So these words I share with you uh, for encouragement this morning were written, they found, on the wall of Mother Teresa's home in Calcutta, India. And they are attributed uh, to her. And it frames up in many ways the philosophy of the Sisters of Charity ministering there within the the grime and the dirt and the the deprivation of, of of what human beings can do to each other when there is no compassion, when there is false religion. And so it is that, that St. Teresa enters all of that And she pens these words. People are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find sincerity and happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, Mother Teresa writes, it's between you and God. It was never about being between you and them anyway. 
It was about being between you and God. And so like Daniel, we we make our move. We make our move, my friends. Like the midwives who delivered Moses from certain death, like Ruth did with Naomi when she pledged to walk with her her mother-in-law staying together, and like what Queen Esther did when she used the power that she possessed to deliver all of the Jews from the Persian Empire from sure and certain destruction, and as the prophet Daniel did in making prayer the prerogative always of his life. May he be our example, oh, though these many centuries on that we too can take heart in the power of prayer as we make it our prerogative in life. Remember, it's always our move. Let's pray together. Lord, as we bow before you this morning, we remember that you were in the garden and you said to your followers, your disciples, could you not watch and pray with me yet one hour? And so, Lord, we understand how important prayer is because there may be someone that we know in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhood, who is suffering a loss, a heartbreak, or some question of unknowing. And we know that all the science and all the therapy and all the drugs in the world will never be able to solve those problems. But help us to remember that we are not powerless in the face of such overwhelming human adversity. Help us to remember that that prayer is the tool, it is the weapon that you have committed into our hands, Lord, that we might win others to Christ, that we might bind up the brokenhearted and set the captives free. So help us to understand and to remember that you are counting upon us, gracious Lord, to pray for others, to get on our knees and to speak their names and to to, to ask by faith with integrity in our hearts like Daniel had integrity, to pray for those that are in need because, Lord, maybe they've exhausted all answers to their problems and they can't go on and they can no longer figure things out. And the only thing that will save them or pull them back from the brink will be prayer. And so we accept, Lord, the mantle that you place upon our shoulders. We accept, gracious God, this call that you give to us to pray in season and out of season, when it's convenient and when it's not, when we're comfortable praying or or when we're uncomfortable. Help us to remember, Lord, that others are depending upon us to pray. Even the very building of your kingdom itself here in Shandon and beyond requires that we be a praying people. We ask these things now in your precious name. And all the people of God said, Amen.